Uh, with announcements out of the way, let us go ahead and move into our teaching for this morning. So we are continuing in our series on the life of David. Uh, it's called Shepherd, Warrior, King. And we are, a, are in 2 Samuel. We just started it last week, 2 Samuel. And so we're going to be uh, there again this morning. And we're going to be in uh, chapter 1. So we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 1 and starting in verse 17 today. So if you have your Bible with you, you can open it there. Uh, if not, if you don't have your Bible or you're having a hard time finding it, we'll have the words on the screens next to me so that you can follow along uh, there as we read it and no one will get left behind. Okay, so once again, it's 2 Samuel chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the second half of this chapter today as uh, David uh, sings this song of lament over the fall of Israel. All right, well, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 1 today. I'll start reading in verse 17. David sang the following lament for Saul and his son Jonathan, and he ordered that, Ju that the Judahites be taught the song of the bow. It is written in the book of Jashar. The splendor of Israel lies slain on your heights. How the mighty have fallen. Do not tell it in Gath. Don't announce it in the marketplaces of Ashkelon, where the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice, and the daughters of the uncircumcised will celebrate. Mountains of Geboa, let no dew or rain be on you, or the fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul no longer anointed with oil. Jonathan's bow never retreated, Saul's sword never returned unstained from the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty. Saul and Jonathan loved and delighted. They were not parted in life or in death. They are swifter than eagles, stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxurious things, who decked your garments with gold ornaments. How the mighty have fallen in the thick of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were such a friend to me. Your love for me was more wondrous than the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war have perished. So just to remind you of where we are in the life of David. Before this, he was in the wilderness on the run for his life. Uh, running as an outlaw, basically, because King Saul, as he had deteriorated more and more into madness, and as he had given in more and more to his own wickedness, became a paranoid tyrant and was trying to take David's life because he knew that David was rising in popularity as he himself was sinking, and he knew that because of his own choices and sin, that the kingdom was being transferred from him and his house Onto David. So because of this, he had been trying to kill David for, for quite a long time. It doesn't tell us exactly how long, but we can assume from the timeline that it was, was a drawn-out ordeal, possibly years, that David was out on the run in the wilderness with his small band of soldiers. They had been separated because David had eventually fled into the land of the Philistines for refuge from Saul because he knew that at the very least Saul wouldn't uh, follow him out there. The Philistine tribes then gather together, and they go to war with Israel on Mount Geboa, the mountains 
that, uh, that Jonathan, I'm sorry, David refers to here in this song. They had gone to war on the mountains of Gilboa and defeated Israel. It was a catastrophic defeat. They had, they had slain many Israelites, and the king himself had died. Uh, Saul was mortally wounded, and whenever he saw that the battle was being lost, he didn't want to die by the hand of the Philistines or be captured by them and tortured or uh, be used as disgrace in any way. So he fell on his own sword. Jonathan, also his son, who was David's friend, died in battle. Now, David and his men had gone off fighting because, uh, because some Amalekites had come and taken all their possessions. Whenever they return, we then find uh, the beginning of 1 Samuel here. They return to their home. It's been a couple of days since that battle, but a weary messenger comes and he delivers to them to the news. And the main news that we just need to be reminded of today is that Saul, that the battle had been lost and Saul and his son Jonathan were slain. David and his men, you remember, they tore their clothes and it says they wept all through the evening and they fasted. They had this immediate and incredible outpouring of emotion and grief at the news of Israel's defeat and Saul and Jonathan's death, even in spite of all that Saul had done to them. You know, it, it was, the, Saul was the reason that they had been living on the run, that they had been living in the wilderness, that they had been outlaws for all this time, and yet they still grieved this loss for, for their nation, and they still grieved the loss of their king, whom they still loved. When we look at the second half of 1 Samuel, uh, I'm sorry, of 2 Samuel chapter 1. When we look at the second half of it, we see this song of lament that David wrote uh, to, as an expression of the grief that they were experiencing. And that's what we're going to look at this morning is his song of lament that he wrote in response to Israel's defeat and the, uh, and the death of Saul and his son Jonathan. And from reading this, we're going to learn about grief, but we're going to learn about uh, lament, what that means and how we can lament. We're going to learn about grief, and then we're going to learn about love as well as we see these, these words uh, down towards the end. So we're going to learn about lament, and we're going to learn about grieving and love this morning from David's song. So we begin with looking at lament. Why is lament important? I think it's something that we don't talk about very often, and I think it's something that we as, uh, as modern Westerners don't really understand. Uh, we, I think we understand uh, pain, or we understand grieving. We understand you know, the, the, uh, the painful suffering that comes in response to experiencing loss or tragedy and so on. But there's this different category, uh, there's really this deeper category of grieving called lament that we don't really talk about often and don't think we understand. But it's important that we grasp it, which is why I'm very thankful for this passage, and we can look at so many others uh, throughout Scripture, which is why I'm so thankful for it, because tragedy, losses, trauma, and especially the deepest of losses, bereavement, you know, loss, loss of a spouse, loss, uh, you know, God forbid, loss of children, or whenever you lose a parents or grandparents, uh, or, or, or maybe even if it's not the loss of someone that is near to you, a family, a friend, but if it is a, uh, a catastrophe that you go through in, in, in your life in some other way, the deepest griefs that we experience can take years to overcome. They can take years to overcome and to heal from. They are something that you do not just uh, experience, you know, bereavement or whatever else. You mourn it for a couple of months, and then you get over it. 
I think because we have a society that, that loves and worships pleasure and loves and worships and lives for comfort and does not like anything that doesn't feel good, I think that we often try to rush people through the grieving process. We expect them to just get over it after a certain amount of time and move on because those feelings aren't good. Right? They're not nice. They're not as fun. But the deepest of griefs, traumas, catastrophes, or whatever else, can take years to overcome. There's researchers, you know, uh, there's uh, uh, psychologists and researchers who can actually, uh, they've learned ways to like measure uh, happiness or fulfillment in life that people experience. And whenever they study people who experience bereavement, you know, the loss of a spouse, they've discovered that on average it takes uh, at least seven years for the widow or widower to, to uh to come to a place where they feel like their life has now finally gotten back to, uh, to uh, at least as good as what it was before. Seven years of grieving it takes for them to go through that. So grief, and especially the deepest of griefs, takes a while to get work through. It's a long darkness that one has to walk through, and so it's important that we understand how to accompany our grief, especially the deepest of them, with wisdom. And that's what lament does. Lament helps us to walk through those valleys and those dark places and to, and to learn how to live when we're going through grief and to do so with wisdom. Because without wisdom, without some kind of a guide, a path to follow, even if it is through the valley, can end up destroying a soul. It can end up destroying a person, a personality. We know this. Maybe some of you have experienced some of the, the certain parts of your personality that, that have been destroyed because of grief and never recovered. Or you know people who have their souls have been crushed because of a grief that was not grieved well with wisdom or whatever else. David's song, his lament, teaches us how to grieve these deep losses. And so what is a lament? This is our first point. There's a lot more that could be said, but for this morning, let's be, let's, let's be satisfied with this. Lament is a disciplined, thoughtful, ongoing form of grieving. Lament is a disciplined, thoughtful, ongoing form of grieving. Let's look at each one of those subpoints of that big point in order. So we're going to look at dis- the discipline, the thoughtfulness, and the, and the uh, ongoingness of lament in the grieving process. First of all, the discipline part. Lament is a grieving that is disciplined. Notice how at the beginning in verse 17 that we read, David ordered that the, it says that the Judahites be taught this song and that it be written down. So David wrote this song. It wasn't just uh, an improvisation. David didn't just start scatting, right, and, and, and there in the middle of their grief. But this was, this was a, a discipline process. David was an artist, as we know from, from Scripture and from the Psalms. He was an artist and a songwriter, and so he... He worked his craft, and in this section here is one of David's all-time best writings. It, it literally, it is beautiful. It is incredible. The expression of emotion and the poetry of it, right? So he he applies his craft to this, which takes discipline, right? But then he orders that it be written down in a book that can then be passed around to the people, so that they can learn it as well. And you know, why do you write things na- down? Not just so that. It can be multiplied right now, but so that it can be passed on. In other words, what David was doing, it, it's in, in a sense, it's his first act as king. What David does is he helps and he teaches the people how to lament. 
He teaches them how to grieve whenever the mighty fall. It's incredible. His first act is king. He orders that the song be taught to others and written down for future generations. So there's a discipline to, to lamenting, to grieving uh, in, in this kind of way. Now, just because a lament is a more disciplined form of grief, and it, that's what I mean by discipline is going to make more sense as we walk through this, okay? It doesn't mean that it is no less truly sorrowful. It doesn't mean that it is no less an expression and act of the emotions. Lament is not something uh, uh, cold, right, in, in, in contrast to uh, an outburst of grief and emotions that is hot. No, lament can be hot with emotion as well, but there's, there's, a more disciplined, uh, uh, it, there's a more disciplined act to it versus that kind of just outburst that we experience whenever we receive news or we just or we break down, or the kind of outburst that we saw in David and his men. If you go back in this chapter, if you remember from last week, right, whenever they first initially heard the news, they tore their clothing, they wept, they fasted. So it's okay for us to have both of these forms of grieving. There are times whenever we just break, whether that be whenever we first hear tragic news or, or later on as we are still walking through it. There are times whenever we just break, and that's okay. All right. The point of this message and the point of learning about a lament is not to say that you cannot break sometimes. It's okay. But we cannot only have that. We must have lament as well. This more disciplined form, which is less informal or spontaneous than other outbursts of grief. So it is a more disciplined form. Secondly, it is thoughtful. As I pointed out, it's really something obvious. You don't have to be a scholar to get this point, but lament is something that is thoughtful. David had to write down these words. David, whenever he wrote the song, like I said before, it was not just an uh, improvisation in the moment, but he carefully chose his words. He applied his craft and skill to writing out this lament. And so this is something that was an exercise of, of his mind and an exercise of his, of his reason, of his understanding, uh, something that took an application of wisdom to be able to do, right? So lament is a thoughtful form of grieving. Uh, it's a, it is a thoughtful form of grieving, and we can see that as David carefully chose his words. There's a scholar named Dale Ralph Davis, and he explained it this way. He said, in a written lament, the words cannot simply be dumped or gushed or mushed as in initial grief. Here, one cannot simply vomit out feelings, but must choose words. Not that the lament is cold, objective, and detached. Rather, the intensity of one's emotions unite with the discipline of one's mind to produce a structured sorrow, a sort of authorized version of distress, a kind of coherent agony. In a lament, therefore, words are carefully selected, crafted, honed to express loss as closely yet fully as possible. So you see, there's this thoughtfulness to it. There's, there's, whenever we lament, we choose our words carefully because we are trying to solve a problem. In his book, When the Stars Disappear, uh, it's the first volume in a series on, uh, on, on suffering in the Christian life. So in this first volume called When the Stars Disappear, there's a philosopher named Mark Talbot, and he wrote this book, and in the beginning, whenever he was just uh, analyzing what is suffering, one of the things that he points out is that very often 
what's the, the pain and the problem caused by suffering in our life is not just the visceral pain and the visceral grief, but, the, but that suffering always throws an obstacle in our pathway. In other words, you're going along in your life and everything makes sense. Everything's ordered. There, uh, things are all together. And then something tragic happens. A, a catastrophe happens or maybe or some kind of problem comes up. And what this suffering does is it throws an obstacle in that pathway. Like I said, you were moving along before. Things made sense. Things were, were, had, had flowed to them. They are going well. They are going in a direction. This obstacle falls down into your pathway, and now this obstacle creates a problem of, of, of what is it? Why is it here? How am I going to get around it? What, what is my pathway going to look like after I get around this obstacle? Is it going to go in the same direction? Is it going to be there anymore, Right? And so it's a metaphor for understanding how very often this is what suffering does, whether it's something that you experience in your own life or often if you just witness it in the world, it it throws an obstacle in our pathway because we witness things that that make us question what we thought we understood before. It shakes the foundations, if you want to put it that way. And so whenever obstacles are thrown to our pathway, you know, in, in the course of any one human life, you're going to have numerous amounts of suffering, some greater, some smaller. You're going to have tragedies. You're going to have accidents, things happening. You're going to have people sin against you. And so you're going to have obstacle after obstacle thrown into your path. Now, what will happen to your life if you do not come up with a way to deal with those obstacles? That's the reason that so many of us carry an ongoing trauma. That's the reason so many of us carry ongoing wounds that just fester and will not heal. It is not just because of the pain that we experienced in those tragedies or, those, or the sins. It is because that obstacle is thrown the pathway and we never learned how to make sense of it. Because we didn't have lament. We grieved. We had that informal version of sorrow and heartfelt, heartfelt pouring out of emotions but we didn't have this disciplined and thoughtful way of working with scripture, prayer, uh, worship, community to work through in a thoughtful manner, united with the pain our heart feels, to, to make sense and then remove the obstacle out of our pathway so that we can then move on, so that we can continue on. And what do we call that? We call that experiencing healing, right? Restoration, wholeness after being broken. So the thoughtfulness of lament is necessary, which lament is necessary to address the obstacles that are thrown in our, in our path and uh, the tragedies that happen that, that make us question the things that we once before thought made sense. So we need this thoughtfulness. Whenever we look at David and his lament here, his song of lament, what does his thoughtfulness express? What are some of the things that, that we can see him working out thoughtfulness, and grief. Well, the first one is this. He expresses disgrace for Israel and her God. He expresses disgrace for Israel and for Israel's God here. And that's what he does in the very beginning where he says, don't go and announce this in Gath and don't let it be heard in Ashkelon. Gath and Ashkelon, if if you remember from earlier in these books, right, were, were major Philistine cities. So what he's referring to here is the celebration, the disgrace, the shamefulness that Israel and, and Yahweh are going to experience whenever the Philistines are celebrating and having parades and singing songs and throwing feasts 
because of their victory over Israel, because of the death of the king of Israel, and because, in their minds, the victory of their gods over Israel's God. So the first thing that David's thoughtful lament expresses and that he's, that he's working through here is the disgrace that they are, that they are experiencing. He includes in his lament the shame that they would have experienced by this defeat. And he includes it in this poem to be memorized and to be remembered by future generations. Remember? He wanted, he wanted people to learn this. He wanted to be written down for future generations, and he includes in there learning about this disgrace. But why would he do that? Why would he include that section in his lament for future generations to learn? Well, I think one reason might be because... Remembering some losses motivate us in future battles. They motivate us in future battles. Or remembering the, the defeat that Israel and her king and her God had here in this, in this battle might motivate future prayer warriors to whenever there is a threat, to whenever there is an obstacle thrown away, to go to battle with that obstacle in prayer to go to battle with that suffering and perseverance, remembering what, what the cost is, right? To remember what's at stake. You know, to this day uh, in, in, uh, in modern-day Israel, in their army, they have this ceremony at the very end whenever cadets are graduating from the academy and they're about to be, you know, full members of the, of the army. They have this event where they, they say this slogan, it references back to the first century A.D., in, in, uh, between 72 and 73 A.D., whenever the ancient Jewish people, whenever the ancient Israelites, were under siege by the Romans. Uh, uh, I think it was Flavius Octavi- Octavius had his armies sieging Jerusalem, and they, had, uh, and, and they were sieging Jerusalem. They were, they were trying to come in and break down the city, and the last remaining uh, soldiers of the Israelites were gathered together in one building, and they had been holding out. For seven months, they had been holding out and defending their city, their home, and their people from this siege by, uh, by the Romans. They were holding out in Masada. And at the very last evening, before the Romans came in, those soldiers knew that defeat was right on the other side, so they decided that they would all commit suicide in the middle of the night. So that whenever the Roman soldiers came in, they, at the very least, though they had taken the city, wouldn't have the pleasure of slaughtering them. To this day, whenever uh, Jewish soldiers are graduating and becoming members of Israel's army, whenever they graduate and they take their oath, they have this motto that they say, which is that Masada shall not fall again. Masada shall not fall again. It reminds them and it motivates them of the the sacrifice and the shame of that defeat and how it might motivate them and inspire them to fight harder today and to not give up. You know, it's similar to in American history. Remember the Alamo, the the tragedy that happened in the Alamo and how the the Texan army uh, yelled together, remember the Alamo, as General Houston uh, led them into the last battle to gain victory. Similarly, David expresses this this grief and remembering over their defeat in his lament to inspire future generations to persevere, to go to war in prayer whenever they are experiencing uh, potential loss, suffering, and so on. A second thing that his thoughtfulness expresses is gratitude. 
When we go into verses 22 and 23, we see how uh, uh, David sings of his gratitude and, uh, for Jonathan and David. He says, Jonathan's bow never retreated. Saul's sword never returned unstained. You know, he's singing of what incredible warriors they, they were, of what powerful leaders they were and defenders they were for Israel. This is an express of his gratitude for them. He goes on to say, in both life and in death, they are never separated. It was a beautiful statement. Now, in life and death, they are never separated to the credit of Jonathan, if you remember. Because Saul had even turned on his son Jonathan at one point. But Jonathan's uh, steadfastness to his father made him never abandon him. And so, as he never abandoned his father in life, he didn't abandon him in death. They died with one another. And David sings of the beauty of that devoted relationship between father and son as well. He expresses gratitude for them, and obviously through them, expressing gratitude for the Lord who had empowered them, for the Lord who had protected them, for the Lord who had given them to Israel. So what does his thoughtfulness express as he laments, as he grieves? He works through that shame. He works through the disgrace that they experience, but he also expresses gratitude for what God had given them and for who those men were. There's a lot of different ways, and there's a lot of different things that might be expressed as you work your way through lament in a thoughtful manner. There's a lot of different things that you might express. There's different things that you might express gratitude for God for, things that he might show you as you work your way through lament. These are just a couple of examples of the things that David expressed. So lament is disciplined, thoughtful, and then lastly, it is ongoing. Like I was saying before, we often become impatient with the grieving, and expect them or we expect the bereaved to just get over it, as I said before, or to just rush along through it because, you know, maybe, maybe we're tired of seeing their grief, or maybe we're tired of what a downer their grief is, or how much uh, it, it asks of us to continue supporting the grieving. But what we need to understand is that the laments of Scripture, just like this one, show us that grief can be deep and it can be ongoing. Through many years and going through many phases, ups and downs uh, of, of time and grieving to get through the things that we experience. So this is what laments do for us. It provides us a structure, a thoughtfulness. It, 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 get, it, it bolsters our grieving with wisdom, understanding that that grieving process and the road to healing might take a while. So it is necessary that we have this wisdom and this road to follow as we work our way through the valleys and through the darkness. What does this mean? Well, what it means for our lives is obvious. It means that we need to learn and practice lament for your deepest griefs. As I said before, if we don't learn how to deal with the obstacle in our pathway that suffering throws, the, the confusion and the way that, it, that it, it makes us question those things we once thought we understood before, what happens to a person's life if they do not learn how to deal with those obstacles? Sometimes we call that baggage, right? How many of us in here are going through life carrying a lot of baggage? How many of us here are going through life and we are still stuck behind some obstacles? They've been holding you back from being the full person that God's called you to be. There's parts of your personality that have died. Parts of your soul that have been crushed because that obstacle was never dealt with. That suffering was never properly grieved and healed from. The questions that you had and the way that it shook your foundation was never dealt with 
with the wisdom of God and the answers of Scripture. And so you're kind of stuck in certain ways. It's held you back from being who you're supposed to be. It's held you back from obedience to God in certain ways. Maybe it's held you back from risk. Maybe it's held you back from prayer because you're afraid of what will happen if you pray again and are disappointed again. Friends, it is necessary that we learn and practice how to lament from our deepest griefs and our wounds and our pains. I referred to a book earlier called When the Stars Disappear. I wholeheartedly recommend it. I did a podcast episode with Mark that you can go check out if you want to get a, a, a preview of it. But Mark Talbot in his book, uh, just to give you a quick little, okay, well, like how can I start learning practicing lament? Uh, let me give you a quick little practice for how you can learn and practice lament. What Mark says in his book, uh, When the Stars Disappear, is he calls it, you need to learn breathing lessons. Now, he doesn't mean literal breathing lessons, okay? He's using a metaphor because he says how often whenever we are experiencing pain, trauma, ongoing grief, uh, it feels like drowning, right? Or, or, or it's like sometimes you need to be told, hey, to breathe because it's as though you've been walking through life holding your breath. And so what are the breathing lessons, the spiritual practices that we can do to help us walk through darkness, pain, and lament well? First, breathing in. What Mark means by this, uh, by breathing in, is that you need to breathe in, you need to soak in God's promises. You need to soak in God's promises, God's words, and God's testimonies to you. This is something that Mark didn't make up, but something that we see in the Bible. Whenever you read the Psalms of Lament, and there are many of them in the book of Psalms, what you see is a regular pattern. There are a couple of exceptions, but very often you see this very regular structured pattern to the way that the psalmist, whether it was David or another psalmist, would bring their pain to God and their lament to God. And one of the things that they would do is, uh, is that they would remember, they would recall, they would remind themselves and their listeners or readers of all that God had done. Maybe you can remember some of these psalms as I'm talking about it, you know. They would remember what God had done. They'll remember his promises. You know, you are faithful to your covenant. You know, surely you are faithful to your covenant. Surely your steadfast love is taken away. You never leave us, right? You have promised that you will be with us, that you will destroy our enemies. But I feel like I'm being crushed, right? But it always starts with, or it's always included, but I know what you have promised. I know what you have promised. And it'll say, I remember what you have done in my life. And so similarly, you need to do that. You're going to need scripture to help you to breathe in God's promises and God's words. And then to remember, what has God done in my past? Remember all the testimonies of grace that he has given you, ways that he has come through, ways that he has rescued you, ways that he has healed you, ways that he has taught you. Remind yourself of all of these testimonies. This is what we mean by breathing in. Breathe in all of these things. Then, once you breathe it in, then you let out your grief. You breathe in God's promises, soaking in his testimonies and reminders of his grace. And then when you breathe out, then with with all those things, filling up your lungs, filling up your minds, you then express your pain to God. You then express your confusion to God. You express those fears to God. Once again, go back and read the Psalms. Read Jeremiah. Read Job. They did not hold back. They did not hold back from crying out to God and expressing exactly what they were feeling, expressing bold things. But it was not done without a reminder of the covenant. It was not done without a reminder of his promises. Whenever you start by breathing in God's promises and words, then it's going to help you to do a much better job of expressing your grief back to him. 
in expressing your pain. Sometimes because what that does is you just needed a little bit of oxygen. You get a little bit of oxygen, and then that anxiety that you're feeling about a situation, you realize, oh, man, God came through for me in this way and in that way, and I remember how he solved this problem that I was having, and so what I'm going through now is going to be okay. Maybe that's all you needed. You just needed a little bit of oxygen. Other times what it does is you breathe in God's promises and words to you and testimonies, and it doesn't solve everything in that moment. But at the very least, it shifts your perspective a little bit before you express your pain to him. That's a simple but structured way that you can lament and work through your grief with God. Just remember those breathing lessons, breathing in his promises, reminding yourself, which means reading scripture, Right? Reminding yourself of the testimonies of grace he has given you, and then breathing out, expressing your pain and your questions and your ongoing hurts to him. What can we learn about David's lament from love? The big themes of this song that he, that he wrote was grieving, which we've spent most of our time, but for the last few minutes, I want to look at what he has to say about love, because I think that is the other great expression that we see here in this song. The, the Puritan commentator and pastor, Matthew Henry, maybe you guys have his commentary, uh, he wrote, the deepest of loves, I have it here somewhere, instead of trying to make it up, what did he say? I'm missing a page of notes. <laughs> Do y'all see, did they get caught in the printer or something? Okay, I'll, I'll be all right. Uh, Matthew Henry said that the deepest of loves call, cause the deepest of griefs. And so as David is expressing all of this grief here in this passage, it's because it's coming from a place of love. That's implied by what he's facing here, but it is explicitly expressed as we get down towards the bottom of it. In verse 25, whenever he moves on to singing of mourning for the lives of Saul and Jonathan, in verse 24, actually, he calls, he says, the daughters of Israel, he calls them to weep for Saul, to, to mourn for Saul. But then he turns alone. Notice this. He calls for Israel. That's what he means by the daughters of Israel. He calls for the people to mourn for Saul. But then he says, and Jonathan lies there too. And he says, I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. His relationship with Jonathan was so important and was so intimate that, in a sense, David feels as though he alone needs to grieve for Jonathan more than anyone else can. And so this is why he, he does it. His description of, of Jonathan is that his love between them was greater than the love that he experienced for, from any woman. He says in verse 26, Your love for me was more wondrous than the love of women. And so we have this incredible expression, uh, like I said, of love here being expressed through the grief, but then also explicitly as he talks about his love for Jonathan, saying that his love surpassed the love of women. What does that mean? There's been a lot of controversy and questioning and debating and arguing over what does David mean by that, especially in the last several decades. There has been a lot of people, whether scholars or others, uh, especially uh, challengers, uh, to Christianity, who point out that verse and say, well, what does that really mean? They say, because what that sounds like to us is that there was some sort of a sexual relationship between David and Jonathan. 
we, they say that must obviously be what it means for him to say that Jonathan's love surpassed the love of women. Many people have argued this and questioned this and say that, that this passage here and the way that David grieved implied that there was some kind of a homosexual, sexual relationship between David and Jonathan, that they were more than just friends. Now, here's the thing. That interpretation or understanding is far, far, far more due to our sex-obsessed culture than it is due to anything being implied or expressed in this text. There's absolutely nothing being communicated by the text itself or by the story of David and Jonathan, or even the, if we were to get into the Hebrew, the linguistics of what David is saying here that would suggest anything near like that. The only reason that people think that today is because we live in a, like I said before, a sex-obsessed culture. Let me just give you a little bit more of a defense for why he's not saying that. Okay, more than just because, obviously, if you read it in plain language, it's not suggesting that, okay? Even in the Hebrew, though, whenever, Jonathan, um, whenever David speaks of the love between him and Jonathan, he does not use the same Hebrew word that is used whenever it is spoken of a, uh, a, a, of a sexual activity, okay? Usually in Scripture, whenever it talks about sexual activity between two people, is it, would, uh, be, uh, it would be translated with the word no. So whenever David had his affair with Bathsheba, Bathsheba was called uh, into the palace, and it would, you know, says something along the lines of, and David knew her. Or we see how it, Scripture says, and Abraham knew Sarah, uh, Adam knew Eve. Every single time, uh, almost every single time, whenever it talks about sexual activity between lovers, it calls it knowing. That Hebrew word that we translate as knowing is not the word that is used here. The word that is used here is one that is used for friendships. It is one that is used for family relationships. It is a different kind of love. And here's the problem with our, with our culture and, and what our culture does in warping our minds to even see something like that in here, right? In our sex-obsessed culture, what we are taught and what we are, uh, are, are uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? What we are trained to assume is that the highest expression of love that there could possibly be between two people is sex, right? That, that, that sex is the best form of love that you can get, that, that, that there is out there. Now, they say that until it's more convenient to say that sex means nothing, right? They can't really decide whether it is the best, highest form of love and that, you know, if your marriage isn't marked by hot, steamy, passionate romance all the time, then it's worthless. I mean, how many shows and movies have you watched where, uh, where there's a married couple who are questioning their relationship because it's just not that steamy anymore? You know, because the assumption is that the highest expression of love is in sexual activity, right? Now, the problem with that is that, number one, it's not true, and number two, it guts friendship. It guts friendship because any married couple in a healthy relationship will tell you that the greatest expression of love and, and, and the, the greatest connection that, the, that they experience more than any... Uh, uh, activity in the bed is the companionship and friendship, the dedication to one another. That is the greatest expression of love. 
If the greatest expression of love is only sexual activity, steamy romance, then it guts the amount of intimacy that can be had between two friends. The, the intimacy of brotherhood that can be had between men is held back from today. I think that there are a lot of men who, who, who have held themselves back from great expressions of love for their friends and their brothers because they're, if I could just be crude, they're afraid of sounding gay, right? Because that, that's our culture's assumption. What David and Jonathan had here was not something sexual, but it was a, it was a beautiful and intimate friendship that was found and formed by the greatest of love, which was this devotion. This is our second big point, which is that love is faithful devotion. Love means faithful devotion. That is why David said that Jonathan's love to him surpassed the love of women, because Jonathan, more than anyone else in David's life, was dedicated to him. Even David's wife, Michael, had left him whenever Saul started going after him, and he had to run in the wilderness Do you remember that in 1 Samuel? Michael had left him, but Jonathan didn't. So now, you see, with these things in mind, it's obvious why David would say that, because the greatest expression of love is dedication. It is devotion. Jonathan had repeatedly devoted himself to his friend David in his life, and Jonathan had repeatedly chosen to make himself second to David. Do you remember those, those, uh, those episodes in 1 Samuel where David and Jonathan were together? They made a covenant with one another, and Jonathan would say to David, you will be my king, and I will be your servant. His dedication to David was a selfless dedication. It wasn't just uh, being devoted to David for what he could get out of David, but it was a devoting himself to David even to the point of making himself second to him. What is the greatest and highest expression of love that can be experienced today? Once again, friends, single people, what you should be looking forward to, young married couples, what you should be working through, it is not sex. That is a wonderful gift from God. But it, it, it is whenever two people are faithfully devoted to one another with no conditions and are both committed to making themselves second to the other. Whenever a person says, that I am willing to put you above me. I am willing to put your needs above mine. I'm willing to put your well-being first and me second. I'm willing to put your flourishing in life first and me second. And that is how we are always going to be on the days that you deserve it and on the days that you don't deserve it, on the days that you're likable and on the days that you're not likable. You see, whenever you have that kind of a friendship, that builds a bond that goes far, far deeper than anything that just a steamy physical relationship could build. This is true for friends between, between, uh, between women, for friends between men, and for friends between a husband and a wife. Friendship and companionship, devotion between uh, parents and children, and so on. This is the kind of love that we should aspire to have in our marriages is the kind of love that we should aspire to build and to nurture in our church, a community of people who are faithfully devoted to one another. I understand it can't be uh, as intimate and as strong a bond with every individual, right? Uh, That's impossible to maintain, but at least in key relationships, 
you, you have this kind of a deep bond that you seek to try to build and, and keep going and maintain. The greatest expression of this love, though, if love truly does mean selfless devotion, putting others above yourself, well, then the greatest expression of love that there's ever been has not even been between David and Jonathan. It hasn't been between any uh, uh, married couple or any friends, but has been in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's greatest expression of love in his own life and in all of world history is whenever he put sinners before himself. And he was faithfully dedicated to you, devoted to you, all the way to the bloody end at his cross. Placing your life, your redemption, your salvation, forgiveness of sins, transformation by the Spirit, he placed all of those things above his own well-being. He placed all those things above his own comfort, above his own flourishing, above his own life, so that he might go to the cross and die so that we could be blessed, so that we could flourish, so that our sins could be forgiven and we'd be welcomed into a relationship with God. This is the greatest expression of love that there has ever been. This is the kind of love that cannot be destroyed by death. This is what Paul uh, referenced to and he, and he wrote about in Romans chapter 8, right? He says, what can separate us from the love of God? Because he is talking about that great love, that covenantal love. He says, can height or depth or, or angels or demons or anything that we do? He goes through this list and he says, not even death itself can separate us from the love of God. What is our proof of that? His resurrection. Jesus' resurrection from the grave is proof that there is something even stronger and more permanent, more final than death itself. And that is the love of God expressed towards me and you. And friends, it's a love that we can take part in and share with one another. So here's where we end with this meditational love and what it means for grief. What this means is, is that we need to prepare our, ourselves to grieve well. We need to prepare ourselves for those losses. Or if you have experienced those losses, then remember this, the love. The love of God that is expressed towards you and that bounds you with if, that person that you lost, if it is a, a grieving a person. And how the love of God for you and that bound you in that person and that the love that you and that person shared, if they are a believer and you are too, cannot be broken even by death. Whatever pain you've been holding on to and grieving you've been experiencing from losses between brothers and sisters in Christ, the love that you share has not been broken though they are departed because there is something stronger than death. Our hope to claim such audacious things is not being grounded in any sentimentality. This is not something you can put on a Hallmark card. This is the power of the gospel that makes no sense to a dark and dying world. But it is, for us, the light of hope that shines through the darkest of times. And so, grab onto that love and soak in that love and try and, and open up your heart and remove sin, repent from idolatry, stay on the righteous path because this is how we experience God's love greater. 
Devote yourself to him so that his love might be poured into your heart to uh, maintain that strong bond between you and him and then between you and others so that it might not break even in the worst of pains or in death. Let's pray. Lord, the things that we say and the things that we believe are utter foolishness to this world. Father, the things that I just said in the worldview of our culture make no sense. And in the and by the wisdom of man are laughable. That there could be a love greater than just sexual expression. That there could be a love which is so powerful and that has the true final word even over death. Lord, these things are laughable. Or that we follow a risen Savior who holds together in himself and in his resurrection the truth of these things that we believe. Lord, make no sense. But for those who have been called by your gospel, who have experienced your spirit poured into their heart, giving them a new heart and birthing faith, Lord, for for you are God who pours your love into our heart that we know with certainty by the truth of experience. Lord, for us, these words are sweeter than any food. They are richer than any fine drink. Lord, they are more warming and comforting than than any experience. They are more awe and wonder-inspiring than the most beautiful of sunsets or night skies. Father, we thank you for the gospel that binds us in love to you and to one another and that fills our hearts with hope that cannot be taken away by any of the suffering of the world, by any of the persecutions or oppositions we face, by any of the tragedies that we endure. And that as we go through these tragedies, we walk through the valleys or when the stars disappear. Because your love has been poured into our heart, it produces perseverance and perseverance character. Lord, even the brokenness of this world you use to transform us and to bring us closer to you. We praise you, Lord, that you are the God who cannot be defeated and that you are the God who, since you are the God of love, has the true final word over all things, even death itself. And so, Lord, in the joy of that truth and in the consolation of your own suffering and your love for us, we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.